So my name is Haya Dawn. I'm the founder and president and CEO of Osino Resources Corp. We're a Canadian-listed um, gold mining exploration and development company, actually, active in Namibia. Uh, we discovered the exciting Twin Hills project, and we've been advancing it for the last uh, couple of years, and it's shortly going to publish a definitive uh, feasibility study, and we're looking to continue to fast-track the project. Hey, uh, thank you very much for the, uh, the for the introduction. Good to meet you again. Uh, we've met socially in the past, but this is the first time on a formal basis. You did an interview a couple of months ago with Matt when you kind of brought the market up to speed uh, with really where the project had got to, and you mentioned a couple of things which I'd just like to touch on. One was... Um, the route to the the definitive feasibility study, which we are aiming for the end of um, this quarter, and associated with that, I think there's a mineral resource estimate, a new a new mineral resource update, and you also spoke about um, kind of project finance um, options. You know, I think Matt was asking lots of questions about how you're going to get it financed. So um, let's we just tackle those three things uh, one by one. First of all, kind of the update on the resource and the um, feasibility study, please. Yes, sure. So currently we have a pre-feasibility study out on the project, which we published in September last year. So that's code compliant 43101. So whatever whatever numbers I mentioned are based on that study. Subsequent to that, we've done quite a lot of drilling to infill and try to expand the resource um, and also to um, get all the technical work ready so that we can publish this definitive study that you're talking about. Um, we are on track to publish that sometime in June, probably middle of June. Yes, it will incorporate a new resource model. I can give broad guidance. Obviously, I can't give you the numbers. I have some numbers, but not all of them. Um, but as part of that, in, in one go, we are going to publish a new resource together with a definitive study. Um, and everything is on track for that. So you're not going to do a separate resource estimate update beforehand? You're just going to um, put it out as one? No, we thought about that, but you know what? We decided not to. Uh, we're doing it all in one go. And when was the data cutoff? When, when did you kind of, uh, the, the drills may have continued turning, but when did the last um, um, anal- um, um, samples get uh, included in the new resource? Yes, I think you got me. It's uh, more or less February. I think it was February, February, March, February, mid-February, March, roughly. I think. Roundabout. I'm not trying to. Um, I'm not trying to track tra- tricky or trap you. I'm just. It was just kind of gives an indication of how much extra drilling there was after the um, the, the last resource. Um, you know how, how much. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Absolutely. I get it. For us, the key, and maybe a little bit disappointing to some of your viewers, obviously everybody always wants more, more, more. But for us, the key of that drilling actually was to convert inferred resources into indicated resources, because reminding your viewers, um, for a pre-fees, you are allowed to use inferred resources, but for a definitive, you are not. It has to be all indicated. So um, so therefore, most of our drilling was, conf- was focused on converting inferred to indicated. Um, and we did some drilling to expand the resource um, to add extra answers. And, and uh, yes, we did add some extra answers, which will be published as part of that that update that comes with the definitive. It wasn't huge, the additional answers, um, but the, the focus really was on extra definition so that we can actually do a definitive study. <laughs> I'm feeling as if I'm being kind of bad cop now, but I don't think you can use inferred resources in a pre-feasibility study. I think you can only use inferred resources in a PEA. 
um, on the Canadian exchange. But, but it's, it's, it's... Oh, sorry, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right. You are right. But but in the definitive... Anyway, we had... No, you are 100% correct. You, you had just had to money. take... You had to... You had to move classifications to kind of go more yes. to the measured and indicated and so to have more measured and less indicated. I think that's... Yeah, so let me... know. very good, very good. Let me just rephrase what I said briefly. We saw that we had some inferred resources that we hadn't included in the pre-fees and we felt by converting them to indicated, uh, we could now incorporate them in the definitive. Plus, we were hoping to add some answers at the bottom of the pit and a few extra errors. So you're 100%, 100% correct. Thank you. Sorry, my head is so full with numbers and stuff. So thanks for that. Um, and also, as an engineer, you're focused on building. You know, these are these um, pesky geologists with their kind of their gold distributed all over the place. It's a, they can be a real pain to try to tie down. I mean, just just looking at one page of your um, of your presentation, I mean, it's clear that uh, you haven't limited, you haven't kind of explored the full length of the, the tenements you've got. So I mean, um, even though you the, the growth may not have come through in this last 12 months in terms of adding increasing the size of the envelope that's not to say that there's not more that you'll get on to explore once you're in production i mean am i um, getting the gist of it yes absolutely i mean you're a geo i know that so you'll understand this this is sedimentary hosted structurally controlled um the package is thick and it does extend over an extensive strike length um, we have a surface anomaly of about 13 kilometers 14 kilometers in that area of which we've drilled probably around about maybe a bit more than half. So certainly closed brownfield still has potential, but further beyond that, we have a range of um, surface anomalies, other surface anomalies, targets, prospects, etc., that we're busy testing. What really happened here is when we made the discovery in 2019, we focused on it. So 2020, 2021, even parts of last year, we drilled mostly resource drilling. We just didn't have time to do a lot of the exploration. Also, as you said earlier, I'm an engineer. So my thought is always the path to value is to advance these answers into production, so to speak, into feasibility studies. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of the Canadian audience likes to do ongoing exploration, which we haven't done very much, but we're getting back into it now. It, it's a kind of slightly different philosophy, isn't it? You have to, um, you have to expand that, that envelope of mineralization until you've got uh, in, enough within that envelope, within within your resource, to be able to uh, commit to a meaningful production level. You know, it has to have scale to be relevant. Uh, I, I, I was talking to one CEO recently who was saying that he feels that kind of 100,000 ounces for him is kind of a, a entry point. And if you take it up to more than 250,000 ounces per annum, you're getting into the size of projects which are not really suitable for single asset development companies. But... Um, you know, I, th I think you're averaging what 150, 170. Is that is that about right? Yeah, a bit more. So, I mean, in the pre-fees, we had 200,000 ounces for the roughly for the first four years, and then coming back. Uh, one of the changes we've introduced since is we've evened that out a bit, just to just to de-risk the schedule a bit. So, I think we're going to land with around about 175,000 ounces a year. So, it's already quite a quite a nice size. I mean, a different metric is the processing plant throughput, five million tons per annum. That's a big plant. For Cola and Mali, which Peter Gold built, which is a, a you know, a very large, one of the biggest gold producers in the world, actually, um, had a study on five million tons per annum. So it's a big plant, um, but it's it's relative to the size of the resource. So it still has a long life of mine of thirteen years, etc. So it's appropriate. So I wanted to make another addition. What you what you characterized earlier about scale is absolutely correct. Um, but I've noticed in the last ten years that the sort of expectations have gone up. 
It used to be million ounces at hundred million ounce resource, hundred thousand ounces a year of production, then you're good. Not anymore. It's um, too small. Like the materials these days, um, they look for one hundred fifty thousand ounces plus. Um, yeah. Anyway, these are just thoughts on how best to scale up the project. Um, has there been any scope change in your, I mean, you just mentioned kind of just evening out the profile and kind of getting the scheduling a little bit uh, less kind of front heavy in terms of execution risk. Um, but has there been any other scope change in terms of um, metallurgical design, you know, ongoing optimization? Is there anything material that's changed since the, um, the study from last September? Nothing major, but we are getting a little bit detailed. And yes, there have been two changes. One is on the crushing circuit, in the pre-fuse, we had an HPGR. That's an advanced piece of kit um, that's not, you know, it's used. Sunrise, uh, sorry, uh, Tropicana in Australia has it. So we brought that in. We've taken that out again because we want to, being a, being a single asset developer, we want a more simple um, communication circuit. And that was on the advice of Lycopodium, who are our processing engineers. So that saved some capex and simplified the, the processing route a bit. The other big one, is we've introduced filtration. That's very important because reminding you, we have a dry stack tailing system. Now that's the way the world is moving. We opted for dry stack tailings as opposed to conventional pumped slurry tailings, which is simpler and usually cheaper. We, we opted for dry stack tailings because, it, because of its much reduced water consumption. Um, but in the pre-fees, we were a little bit light on the assumptions because we assumed that the material at a 23% at a moisture content would stack. But it doesn't actually, it's too sloppy. So this was pointed out to us and we figured this out ourselves. So we did a lot of additional test work, filtration test work to come up with a way to get the moisture content of that material down so it becomes drier and it stacks properly. So we've done all of that and that has really de-risked the project substantially. And we still have a dry stack tailing system. It's probably going to be 16, 70% moisture, but it does require filtration, which has eaten up quite a lot of the capex savings which we introduced elsewhere. It's going to be $10, $15 million of extra capex for filtration. But it's it's good capex because it brings our water co water consumption down 30 40%, which previously one of our key risks was water. You know, Namibia, dry, somewhat water stress. So having reduced the water consumption further has obviously been a big de-risker. So those have been the main scope changes. Um, otherwise, the process flow diagram is exactly the same. As, as it was in the previous. It's, it's really good to, I, I know it's slightly detailed, but to get this granularity, it, it really sheds a light on the kind of things that you have to start thinking about as you take a project closer to production and further up that um, um, development curve, um, which of course comes to people. You know, your, your team has changed probably since when you first started an exploration and it, it, it will change again as you reach that um, final investment decision, all of those things that go ahead. So can you just kind of talk about where you are, particularly as a single asset developer, which hasn't built an asset as this team and which hasn't um, run a mine before, even though individually you may have done? Yes, now it's a very pertinent question. And as you can imagine, we've thought a lot about this. So let's say there are four stages, exploration stage, study stage, detailed engineering stage, and then implementation stage. That's a typical sort of construction um, cycle of any mine. We have always been an excellent exploration company with an excellent exploration team, a world-class exploration team without a doubt. Um, we then hired some very good people, uh, project people, um, a metallurgist in particular who's our study director and a study manager who's an ex-Rand Gold feasibility study expert. And so therefore, with them and together with our very competent 
third-party engineers like Podium and DRA, we became a very competent study group. So we, right now we are a very competent study group. We, we do not yet have the core team required to build a mine. But this sounds more difficult than it is because the way this is typically done in Africa, certainly, is that you follow an EPCM approach, engineer, procure, construct and manage, which is outsourced to your process plant designers, could be like a podium, could be DRA. And the owner, which is us, creates a small owner's team. It's like 10, 15 people headed by a project director. That's the mine builder, construction manager, maybe an engineer, a few clerks of works. That small owner's team um, supervises the EPCM, which is basically you get a contractor to build a mine and you supervise them while doing it. That's the path that we will take. We've advertised for some of those key positions. We're in the process of recruiting a project director. We've, um, we, we, we've, we've selected, we haven't appointed yet, but we, we're about to appoint headhunters to target specific rock star mine builders. Um, and we know who they are. They're out there. Some projects are just being completed. So, so we can pull this together, but we, we are not quite there yet. I hope that answers your question. It's 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 a slightly iterative process, isn't it? You've got to get this the study in place, and you've got to get the engineering in place, then the team, and then the money. And um, so let's move on to the the money side of things. Uh, the capex build it, per the PFS was three hundred and seventy five million dollars. Um, the, the, the capex to kind of get started. So round round numbers, four hundred million dollars, three seventy five to four hundred. That's kind of the that's what I would expect there. The, the numbers to come out with anything better would be probably be a win typically these things are financed with a split between debt and equity um perhaps you could uh talk about how that that process is coming along yes i'll get back to it i just wanted to get back to um the process quickly and bring in a very important point and that is that there's a feed phase feed stands for front end engineering and design so the way juniors as opposed to majors generally approach projects is that they divide the feasibility up into two pieces one is the feasibility study and the next one is the feed. Feasibility study is primarily to come up with a tight capital estimate and OPEX, obviously, but the feed, that's the detailed engineering, is intended to um, do enough engineering work so that you can order your long lead equipment, long lead items like mills and other things. And during that feed stage, you do the detailed engineering. So a feasibility study often is, it does not have that uh, detailed engineering yet. We followed exactly that approach. The reason one does that is because then you stretch things out a bit, you de-risk things, and also you, um, you, don't, you basically the cost is divided into two. So therefore, um, we will announce our feasibility study mid-June, and we will immediately thereafter commence the feed. The feed is going to be a three to five month process, and will will end with ordering of long lead items. And during that feed process, we will put in place a lot of these implementation requirements that we discussed earlier. Um, okay, so that was just a clarification. Now to, answer your, now to answer your question on the capital. Firstly, I mean, I can't talk about these numbers because they're not official yet, but I think there's a good chance that we will reduce that capex slightly. I don't think hugely, but, but certainly slightly. And I consider that a win because the general feeling in the Canadian market certainly at the moment is that all capital projects, as they go from pre-fees to definitive, tend to overshoot or tend to increase the capex by 30% or so. In Africa, we have not seen this. In Africa, projects have generally stayed in line. I expect us to be in line with the pre-fees and potentially small improvement. So that's very important because it leads into the financing question. Because, yeah, so you asked about that. So, um, 
we had a extensive process over the last year to identify potential financiers. We've settled on a short list, um, and we've, we actually very recently had, had a site visit with one entity in particular. Can't talk too much about who it is. It's still not, not finalized. But they will supply us with a significant amount of project finance, comprising, um, you know, the usual packet, usual parts of a package. You know, a lot of senior debt, potentially a small stream, and a, and a very large or a very significant um, equity lead order. But we that we would then we would then probably you know 60, 60 to seventy percent of the pro- total project capital. The rest we would have to raise in equity. And we are we are gearing up for that, so, and and that will happen sometime in the second half of the year. Obviously, equity is always sensitive because people are always expecting the next financing, and then they sell you off, etc. So there is not going to be an equity financing anytime soon. We have enough money to see us through the feed, but um, once once the project finance is at the loan agreement stage, signed loan agreements, that's what unlocks the equity financing. So therefore, probably in the fourth quarter. We will re- we will raise the required equity, and also the equity. By the way, I should say is waiting for the definitive because the definitive will tell us how much of it we actually need, and we think it's going to be a little bit less than people expect. So, sorry, that was a long answer to a short question. No, 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 that, that's that's perfect. That's exactly um, the what I was expecting. I mean, get, to get seventy up as high as seventy percent uh, on through project finance is quite a high um, portion. I mean, I'm I'm it's slightly higher than I'm used to. Is that um, do you see that as being anomalous or in your experience? No. So the way that's not that's not a fixed number, by the way. So for, for as a CEO of this company, I'm obviously juggling a lot of balls that I have in the air. You need to juggle them all at the same time. And this, these balls, are on the one hand, you want to minimize your equity financing requirement because that's dilutive. And when the share price is low, it hurts you. But on the other hand... And, and that's why you try to maximize the debt that you can get. And that's why when I said 60, 70%, that's what we can get based on the assessment that we've done. It's a high, it's a high degree of gearing for a single asset developer. And I believe it's not optimal for, uh, it, it's not the optimal way to develop a project. You would want to have a lower degree of gearing. But where do you get it from? So that's where a little bit of a dirty word that I'm going to introduce, which is streams. I mean, if you look around, probably the lowest cost of capital in terms of project financing anywhere in the world, not probably, definitely, is streaming finance. And you can see more and more other companies are doing it, but streaming finance makes M&A complicated, and that's why that's why it is a bit of a dirty word. But So for us right now, and again, I can't say too much, we are in a process of evaluating all of our strategic options in terms of how this project could be developed. By, by strategic options, I mean JVs, outright sale of the company, strategic investment, or total standalone plan, go it alone. We we thick in the woods on all of these discussions, and I can't say more because obviously all of it is price sensitive. In the end, after all of that, we will figure out the best capital structure, and then we will raise the required capital um, in order to build the mine. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. But the other thing about streams that people often don't realize is that the streaming companies make a relatively low return. You know, as you said, it's the cost of capital is quite low for the for the financing of the um of the, the the original mine design and the original mine plan but where they make their money the way that they it really they, it's just fantastic investment business for them is when there is um new ounces which are found beyond the um the original mine plan and so if you've got Absolutely. if you've got a lot of prospectivity along strike and you can see anomalies left right and center and you think 
well, hang on, this is this is um, all upside, then I would say that that becomes very expensive capital if I'm an equity shareholder. And I, as a if I, if I was a fund manager, I would be dead against it. I agree. I agree. It's um, if you think long term, it becomes expensive, and that's why comparing these costs of capitals, it's not quite comparing apples with apples because it depends how many ounces you bring in. But there's another very important point which people forget, which is why streaming finance actually is very relevant for a single asset developer, and that is streaming companies only get paid when you produce. Whereas a bank gives you debt, they will take their pound of flesh regardless whether you produce or not. And so from a risk management perspective, streamers are definitely more aligned with you as a single asset developer, but they also take their pound of flesh, especially if you have expiration upside. And that's why it's a, it's a very difficult one. I think if we were to remain as a standalone developer, which is our base case, then a significant degree of streaming finance definitely will become part of the package. But... There are other ways of, of skinning the cat, and we, we are evaluating all those options at the moment. And um, just on that, can I just ask what your kind of um, institutional um, shareholder base looks like? I mean, how much of the stock is held by institutions, and um, w- what's their commentary to you at the moment? Yes, um, the whole spectrum. Well, firstly, the shareholding is, you know, what makes us unique, I guess, is we still have a significant insider shareholding, which is myself, my family, you know, my brother, my sister, all people around me. Ross Beattie. Um, Patty Copper, who's a well-known Canadian promoter, and resource capital funds, not, not in order of size, but roughly. So they, these, these four entities together account for about 35% of the company. So therefore, and, and these are all very aligned with the rest of the shareholders. We, we want to minimize dilution, et cetera, et cetera. We are value focused. The institutional shareholders that we have is another roughly one third of the company are very credible uh, names out of Canada, you know, McKenzie, Merck, um, a range of names, everyone knows these, the typical Canadian mining funds. Their commentary to us is across the spectrum. Some are saying overfinance, i.e. sell a stream, do all of this. We are underfinanced because we've been very jealous about our equity. We've, we've always minimized equity financing uh, because it's positive for the share price. So we have to ultimately, when it gets to the investment decision of building the mine, we're going to find ourselves somewhere in the middle. You've got to balance, balance all these competing interests. But as a CEO and significant shareholder in the company, I'm very focused on value. What's the best way to create value for our shareholders? I just want to just jump back to the project. A couple of questions I wanted to ask, which I didn't. One is, um, what's the mineralogy and the metallurgy like? Um, because that can play such a, a, a differentiating role in how successful your um, your balance sheet is in the first couple of years of um, production. Yes, I'll try my best. I'm only a mining engineer, so I'll go high level on mineralogy. Um, so we have obviously not a very, de- very um, deep level of oxidation because it's dry terrain. So we've got an oxide cap and the rest is sulfide. But when I say sulfide, it's not refractory. It's free gold. Um, we have all the pyrites from arsenopyrite to pyrotide to what's the last one? Um, the third pyrite. And so, yes, there is some... Uh, there's some arsenopyrite. It's nothing. It's, it sounds bad, but it's it's pretty standard. If you look at across our pits um, that are in the prefees, it seems like the higher grades are associated with arsenopyrite. So yes, we do have some arsenic, and and it does affect recovery. But so responding to your question on metallurgy, it's a stock standard crush, grind, um, gravity separation, and then CIL process. Um, no roasting none of the difficult things that we get about 93% recovery. So it's actually a vanilla, very easy 
well understood um, metallurgical processing routine. Do you do? Have you got a flotation stage to kind of get the mass? No, no, just no. straight in. Straight in. Uh, we get about thirty percent gravity recovery, which is which is a nice kicker. Um, and but yeah, the recovery varies between sort of 90, between eighty eight and ninety five percent. Um, and where we have more arsenopyrites, uh, the recovery is a bit lower. But um, but all in all, it's very easily treatable. Ore, and we've done a, a huge suite of metallurgical test work um, to back this up. So we're definitely in very good hands when it comes to metallurgy. And the arsenopyrite can go straight to the tailings? Yes. Yeah, so remember, this is a um, double-lined dry stack tailings facility. So even though there's some water in the tailings, yes, there could be some dissolution of, of arsenic. Uh, but it's all encapsulated in the tailings. We have made provision for an arsenic removal circuit, but we probably don't need it. So we've been very conservative in the way we've approached this. Plus the, the whole tailings dam is uh, double-lined. Thank you. And my next question was um, about permitting. Where where are you and um, where does the kind of final mine permit fit in the, the four stages that you spoke about? Uh, we're getting to the end. We So you have... Just like in the rest of the world, it's very similar to the rest of the world, except that it's more predictable because you're dealing less with special interest groups and we are on private land, not state land. So we don't need any of these forestry permits and other things that, especially in North America, often take years to obtain. Um, so we have two large permits or primary permits, the mining license and the environmental authorization, both of which we have. There's a little bit of housekeeping to do on the environmental authorization because we have to relocate five individual graves which um, where we have to get consent from the uh, families of the deceased. Um, so those are the two major permits which are in place and those are the ones typically that are unpredictable. So that's a great win. We are now busy um, with the secondary permits which is stuff like topsoil removal, vegetation clearing, water abstraction. These things are very predictable and probably will get them in the next six months or even during early construction. So that's why you can say we are largely permitted, um, but we do have a little bit of housekeeping to do before before we can actually commence with money. Um, hi, thank you so much. It's been a, um, a really enjoyable for me. Um, introduction to the company, on top of what I had already learned through the prior interviews with um, Matt and um, reviewing your materials. So um, good luck with the, um, I think the, the next big news is the feasibility, um, the feasibility study. The the rest of the year is going to be filled up with kind of meeting some of those kind of key criteria, the, the, the front end engineering design um, and possibly some financing news. Is there anything else in there um, that you can see it's been kind of the, the, the part of your planned news flow for the year yes no thank you um you're exactly right so everything flows from the definitive feasibility study on the project side but what you haven't asked i'm not going to go into too much detail we're obviously quite active on the exploration side we've got a big portfolio we're not that it's not reflected in the value in our share price so we're looking for um, all sorts of ways to add value to the exploration portfolio number one through actual discovery and there's some exciting exciting stuff brewing but also through finding uh, good partnerships with others that give us validation and that finance the exploration um, so that we can try and crystallize some value with that big portfolio and the, the ongoing activity that we have. But other than that, I really appreciate your uh, more technical nature of this interview, which I haven't had for a while. So thank you very much. It's been great. Good. Well, good luck. Um, and as an exploration geologist, I always like to uh, get a bit of exploration news. I mean, I, that's one of the attractive things I can see about um, Asino is the... Um, is the wider potential. And we haven't even spoken about the lithium, but perhaps let's save that for another day. No problem. Thank you very much. Um, and yes, on the exploration side, I can see 
Um, we, we, we're quite positive. I think we're making good progress. Thank you.